Well, you're listening to Secondhand Movies. I'm Morgan. And I am Joel, your co-host. We're just going with weird energy tonight. Weird. <laughs> We're like zombified, transmortified, transmortified. Is that a word? I'm going with it. Sure. Works for me. We're going for weird energy. Very weird. You always know it's going to be a good episode when we spend the first five minutes going, are we going to cut all of this? Probably. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. We're recording it, on a Monday, and it's been a Monday, I guess. <laughs> for both A of weird us. Monday, though. A weird Monday. Yeah, I, I had to stay up late to finish watching the movie because life just didn't work out very well for me right. to watch it. I was, it was like Thursday. I was like, okay, I have to watch this. And then Friday night didn't work out because our van had some problems. And so my Friday evening got rerouted. And then Saturday... I had stuff in the evening, and the whole day just wasn't really like we just kind of hung out. We had I had zero motivation, and then yeah. I and then I'd realized I was like Sunday is Mother's Day. Ah, oh. yep. And so I was out of town basically all day Sunday, visiting with various mothers and doing things. And so nine thirty ish, ten o'clock, I finally started it. <laughs> yeah, less than ideal. I mean, I was. Not much further behind than you were. <laughs> I I think I started my movie around six or seven. Okay. So. Yeah. It's not my preferred because I like to stew on it a little right. longer. I know. Yeah. It's same same with me. See, I I thought I owned it, but apparently I didn't. So I had to kind of rush out real fast, and I I was trying to find it online and. Um, this movie actually is not streaming currently. Whenever we originally talked about it, it was. I ended up renting it from Amazon. I finally watched the DVD that I bought. I have no idea when I bought it now. I, it's legitimately been two years plus. Did Did you unwrap it finally? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't remember if it was wrapped or not. I think <laughs> I want to say... A while ago, I had finally unwrapped it. Like, I almost watched it once. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to have time to sit down and watch the whole thing. And I refuse to watch this. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, this is definitely... And I still got a little interrupted. Yeah. Not, like, massively, but... Well, little interrupts are fine, but, you, you know, it's not one you want to get halfway through and then right. pick it up the next day type thing, so... That was definitely the goal, was to be interrupted as little as possible watching it. So I didn't worry about streaming. I just pulled out my DVD and watched it <laughs> yeah well this this movie we haven't even said the title the title is 1917 oh yeah yeah it's a war movie yeah directed by sam mendez came out in 2019 yes i was the one recommending it yeah this one came up almost immediately when we were discussing possible movies and this came back up i was like yeah no i'm kind of ready to watch it i would i'd like to see it i really like World War One movies because they're they're just not as common. Yeah, they're they're harder to do, mm. uh, from what I understand, because it was a lot of just trench warfare. Oh, so it's harder to make it interesting. Yeah, I mean, recently we got All Quiet on the Western Front um, that came out on Netflix, which is the German World War One. Yeah, perspective. I mean, obviously the famous novel. Yeah, of uh, the same name. Yeah, and, and that that one was the remake of the older movie, correct? 
I don't know how much it's based off the movie versus the book. I mean, there, there's the original novel right. that came out, well, and I'm, then they've adapted it at least the two times. I, I think they've adapted it more often, but I don't know. Okay. And I've never seen any of those adap- adaptations. I I probably should. I just haven't. Yeah. I want to say, it's, is it Hemingway that wrote oh, Quiet on the Western Front? I, I honestly don't know. Ben. I know Ben's listening. <laughs> right? <laughs> He's probably yelling at us, it's this. I know. Right. And we looked it up afterwards, okay? <laughs> it was a weird Monday, okay? <laughs> I've never read it either. It's it's one of those that always sounded a little dreary, but I'm probably at the point in my life I would actually enjoy reading it, honestly. Yeah. Paths of Glory, I've watched. I wanted to finish, but actually kind of what I wanted to not happen here happened to me on that i watched a portion of it couldn't finish it so i watched part of that i really liked it um but it's it's mostly focused on perspective wise this would be like the commanding officer who's receiving orders to do an attack the next morning and he basically was like arguing with them he's conflicted because it's not necessarily even arguing with the command of chain but chain of command it's just he's conflicted because he knows it's mostly a suicide mission yeah that either most if not all of his men will die and probably himself yeah i mean they kind of get into that a little bit at the beginning and the end of this movie mm-hmm. you know with um colin firth yeah you know he's the head general and you know he's like hey i'm trying to save all these men 1917 starts we we just have two soldiers who are, they're both corporals, I believe. Lance corporals. Yeah. And they're World War One British Army infantry, and they are told to basically report to the Colin Firth general, who is, they're like, why is the general here? Well, lo and behold, new... Intelligence. Uh, yeah. Has shown that the Germans have retreated their line, but it's, it's a strategic retreat to an already fortified line they're joined by others and so this colonel who's in charge of two um brigades that's the term was it was like sixteen thousand minutes eight thousand each are going to attack and they're going to be just decimated one of the characters it's his brother is in the sixteen thousand men as another corporal and so they're using him to relay the message to the the colonel in charge of those men. And he gets to pick a man to go with them. And so the two of them have to cross over what the dead man's land and then basically what they have to trust that the intelligence says there is no more Germans and hopefully there won't be. And then they have to cross some additional just terrain and go through a couple go through a couple things and then get to the other army in time. And that's that's the mission. That basically is the movie. Like if you haven't seen it, you just Heard it. Yeah, it's <laughs> very dramatized version of what you just heard. But it basically so. happens in real time and is covering the space of like less than 24 hours. Which is like amazing. At the time it came out, you know, having the real time aspect of it shooting and things like that, it was talked about a lot yeah. from a production standpoint. And so, and, and the director of photography is somebody that I follow. But yeah, I I would definitely recommend it. I think it's definitely one of those movies that is worth seeing. I do regret not seeing it in theaters. See, so that that is one thing that I did. I originally saw it in theaters. 
Yeah. And man, I mean, it's a completely different experience. Yeah, um, I mean, it was still good at yeah, home, but yeah. man, seeing it in, especially like seeing it in a in an IMAX theater with really good sound, uninterrupted, like that would be. That's definitely one of those movies that I would put on a short list of see that see that in theaters. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, very exciting in theaters. Like you're just captivated by everything in it so so was the other you started to say something else yeah i mean it was just a continuation of what we were talking about earlier we'll continue away um it's uh what the colonel mckenzie played by benedict benedict cumberbatch cumberbun cucumber (laughs) i had to i had to he makes fun of cumberbatch (laughs) he makes fun of himself so it's okay. It's true. But yes, it is Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, he says, I hoped today might be a good day. <laughs> Hope it's a dangerous thing. That is for now. Then next week, command will send a different message. Attack at dawn. There's only way- one way this war ends. Last man standing. And so that just kind of describes you know, what we were talking about earlier. Just like how... World War One was basically, basically was it was one massacre after another massacre. Yeah, it was. And the like, yeah, okay, ugh. Germans get a massacre this time. Okay, Brits and French get a massacre this time. Yeah, well, and more than any other war, it was like fighting for the same few feet again and again. Oh yeah. Essentially, what's so crazy about World War One to me is that. Never before in human history, really, outside of siege warfare, had you had this extended kind of battle lines. And and in siege warfare, it's a totally different dynamic. You never had just infantry just dug in forever and ever. You, you either, like, met on the battlefield and fought, or you, like, parked, and you didn't fight. <laughs> like, y'all were either kind of on opposite sides of, like, a valley, going, all right, I guess tomorrow we'll form up in formation and fight each other or you were like actually fighting like you didn't have constant waves going back and forth and then two of course just the leaps in the technology you had never had that type of warfare with that level of infantry support with the size of the munitions for shelling and obviously machine guns had become common and yeah, having planes starting to be well, common. Yeah, more so for reconnaissance, but right in nineteen the, the nineteen seventeen era, the World right. War One. It wasn't until the end that they started mounting machine guns to planes. Right, they actually did a, a lot of their quote unquote dog fights were actually done with pistols, mm-hmm. and they were shooting at each other like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. Like, tanks weren't even all that popular yet either. No, I mean, well, and they started, and that's what's so weird is it's such a bridge war because, like, you start, they're still cavalry charges. They're still using horses. Yeah, yeah. See, that's one thing I loved about the movie is there were a bunch of horses in it. Mm -hmm. Like, they were all dead horses, but... It counts, it counts. Right. (laughs) We're we're not beating dead horses. Oh... (laughs) It's weird, okay? <laughs> it's a weird day. <laughs> you are right. Like, they had the same lines, battle lines, for months. Yeah. You know, they were about 100, 150 feet apart. 
I thought they were a little further than that. I thought they were more I, like a hundred yards, but there were there were areas that were that close. Okay, granted, yeah, that's probably so, true. Yeah, but yeah, and then the area between they called uh, Dead Man's Land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dead Man's Land or No Man's Land. I, I kind of heard both. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's one that's more accurate to World War One or if it's just. Uh, I would say Dead Man's Land because I mean, yeah, that you were pe- dead. Yeah, you go up there, you're dead. If one side doesn't shoot you, the other side will. <laughs> <laughs> no matter which way you're facing. Yeah. Yeah. This film isn't historically accurate. It is, however, it's loosely based on a, a couple of different battles, so to speak. Yeah. It, it's kind of also, I would also call it historical fiction in that it's it references several things that are historically correct, and then yeah. it creates a narrative in the middle of that. The Germans actually did retreat mm-hmm. to a more fortified line. Yes. And they were actually, like, they did do that on purpose type mm-hmm. thing. So, uh, like, and so I, I don't know for sure if, like, you know, the English were going to go charge after them right. or whatnot. Like, it doesn't actually say that in the uh, history books that I was reading. Um, earlier but it does it does talk about how like they did actually do that i think for us sometimes you'd be like that doesn't seem like that very good of a move but you then realize the reconnaissance at the time is really difficult yeah because everybody's scared to get out of the trench you just assume they're still there for the most part so it takes you a while to realize hey they're gone yeah it doesn't it's not like five minutes later you're like oh they're all gone It, it could be hours if not days before they start realizing uh, a lot of times it was days i mean i assume they would have some people stay and continue to shell and shoot some stuff off for a while so i mean you could kind of have most of your people leave and then you could kind of have a small contingency stay for cover for a while and then eventually kind of slow down and eventually leave and set a few traps and destroy equipment and all that jazz all that jazz. All that jazz. But you don't have any, you know, you have limited air reconnaissance. In that time, it makes a lot of sense why they would do those kinds of maneuvers, and they would be successful. Yeah. Or, or, or if they did run telephone lines, you know, through their camps, mm-hmm. a lot of times they end up getting shelled and broken. Sure. Sure. So they, they actually, yeah, they talked about it because, you know. Right. They're like, oh, the the Germans cut our, yeah. our wires. Yeah. So yeah, we can't not. communicate with them. <laughs> yeah, and and this is also before anything's really encrypted too. I mean, oh yeah, it's it's just again, this was such a weird war because nobody had fought this kind of a war. Yeah, and people were playing with a lot of things that they had never really played with at this scale before too. Right, introduction of mustard gas and ugh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's where stuff gets really yucky and. I'm actually thankful because, you know, 1917 doesn't really get into that a whole lot. You know, that just focuses on this one day, like you said. From what I gather from the time that he speaks to the general to the time that he talks to the colonel, it's only supposed to be like three hours. Like, that's how long it should take him to get there. Obviously, because of everything that happens, you know, he doesn't get there till right as they're attacking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. But, you know, from from what I gather, that's that's what is supposed to happen. It's only supposed to take like three hours to get over to 
Yeah, the, I mean the colonel or whatever his name is. They they talk about it early, and he says, you know, even if we took a while, like I think it was still like he was estimating like six hours, maybe eight hours yeah. tops. And obviously, if they hoofed it, you know, maybe yeah. four or five Let, hours. Yeah, because he even talked about like, hey, let's get some rest right now and let's leave at night. Wasn't so much rest. He was more like, so I don't get killed. Right. If there are any Germans left over across the trench, like, right. I'd like to live. I feel like this movie got so much conversation around technical aspects that just from a narrative, I, I liked it. I like the simple plot. It's very easy to follow. Oh, yeah. You don't you don't really have to sit and worry about anything. You don't even really worry that you don't, you know, know these two men very well because it's Blythe and Crawford. Uh, it's supposed to be Blake and Schofield. Wow, I'm not even close. Yeah, Will Schofield. The only reason I remember that is because that's, you know, he introduces himself. Right. At the end. I don't know why I was thinking Blythe. I mean, Blake, Blake and Blythe. I just misheard it probably. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Blythe is very English. Yeah, so that's I'd, true. I don't blame you at all. Well, but is that, is Blake his last name or first name? I think it's his last name because okay. he's he's asking for like Lieutenant Blake. Yeah, yeah. Because the movie for majority of it only talks about them by last name. Oh yeah, yeah. They re- reference each other by last name, Blake yeah. and Schofield. I felt like you had enough understanding about them to you know have some understanding of who they are. You know, they talk about a little bit of reference to Schofield's. Prior, he's been at the front longer, clearly. He's been in some of the major battles. Yeah, they talk about him getting a medal mm-hmm. at one point. Uh, I think what they do a good job of, and this is this is a good technique with this type of movie where it's about the journey, they do a good job of characterizing them through simple traits and characteristics. Blake is optimistic, but also... Um, not not headstrong. He's not cautious. Yeah. You know, he doesn't have a death wish or anything, but he's very much kind of, if it's in front of him, he's going to do it. He's going to say it, you know, just impulsive, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Schofield is much more measured. And I don't want to say cautious because he acts a lot without hesitation. Like he doesn't, he's not cautious in that sense. Reserved is, or measured. Measured would be a better word, I think. Like he tends to just look, take stock, think about it, and then do something. He doesn't just kind of rush in, but he always kind of takes a beat to think. <laughs> yeah. Which, for the, the most part. Blake doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously some of it you have to react, but, yeah, I mean, he either the, hides or runs or right. fight or well, something. Well, the one scene I'm thinking of is whenever he's, like, after he wakes up, he, like, is trying to get his bearings and... Well, yeah. He like goes up to the fire, and he's just like, "Uh, what what happened?" And he's just like sitting there, and then like the Germans start coming up after him. Yeah, that's. And then he's just like, "I better run." Oh, I better. Yeah, exactly. So I, I you know, there's a little freezing right there. He's, and I kind of get it. Like, yeah, you know, he's trying to get a bearing and seeing what happened because you know he just blacked out. Yeah, well, he also you know had a head wound. <laughs> feel pretty comfortable saying he probably has a concussion <laughs> yeah. and is probably a little dehydrated. Yeah. 
and uh, has some blood loss. Yeah. So, all those things. And then you got to go run a mile. Yeah. While people are shooting at you. It's fun times. In the dark. In the dark. Or darkish. Yeah, they're shooting flares. Yeah, the fire. And the fire. And the fire. There's the fire. Yeah. There's a little bit of light. It's not completely dark. Is there a favorite sequence? Or was there a sequence that stood up to you more rewatching? Uh, the, so the first time watching the plane crash scene mm. um, was probably most intense for me. Because it's like, you know, I read that from a mile away. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, oh man, like really? <laughs> yeah, I think um, you read it. They do a good job of read. You really read it as an audience way before the characters do. But yet, how they execute it surprises you as an audience, too. Yeah. And honestly, I was surprised, like, that they went to address the pilot at all. It goes back to what you were saying. Like, it kind of shows their their youngness, so to speak. They are definitely not seasoned. Because if they were seasoned, they would know, shoot. <laughs> well, and also, if they were seasoned, I think they'd also know not to run up to the plane. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because that's pretty dangerous. There's a lot of fuel. Well, and back in that day, there's no, (laughs) no safety. Not, not much of those. I mean, that's it's pretty much you've got a gas tank strapped on, and there's a fuel line, and that's about it. So if anything damaged to that, I mean, it's gone. The other thing that surprised me a little bit was that for the you know immediacy of their mission. I was a little surprised that they didn't, neither of them ever said anything about, like, hey, we just need to go. It's somebody else's problem. Yeah. Like, I would have understood if they had, like, gotten the guy out. I'm like, all right, he's not dead. It's like, well, we can't, you know, it's like, all right, I don't want to kill him, but we can't leave him. Like, what do we do? (laughs) And it was like, there, the fact that there was not even a move towards instead of immediately trying to address his wounds or to address something, there was nobody saying, wait, this really isn't our, like, we need to go do something else. Yeah. Like, what are we supposed to do with this guy? And yeah, it's like, it's... they could have just hit him with their head, with like the rifle stock and knocked the guy out, made sure he's not like bleeding out or whatever and like tied him up and left. I mean, or something, I don't know. What but, was your instinct once you realized he was alive and he was screaming because he was on fire, the the German pilot? Well, that's uh, that's an interesting question. What did I think was going to happen? Um, I mean, exactly what happened. I I, mm. I, I mean, probably not the way that it happened, yeah. but I figured somebody was going to die. See, I was hoping that Schofield was going to kill him. Yeah. I was hoping for like a character beat where Blake kind of like in the moment Schofield helps save him or something and Blake's like hauling him off and then they start to argue and you can see Schofield start to be like we shouldn't do this yeah and so I was kind of thinking there for a sec I was like oh they're gonna argue and then like Schofield's just gonna like because Schofield's more experienced so I was like Schofield might just flat out murder this guy and like be like no yeah. he's the enemy boom 
and they're they're going to have some conflict in the rest of this journey and you know obvious like different bifurcation and then of course when he leaves them alone, I'm like <sighs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah everybody's like dang it it goes to show like cuz i know any sort of messengers uh you know back in the day even in world war 2 mm-hmm. you know they had to do some runners sure you know they're taught like if you're going to be a runner you don't stop for anybody yeah and just know that if you're caught by a machine gun or a, a gun and they know you're a runner, you're going to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal. You know, in Saving Private Ryan, you know, they kind of go over that a little bit um, mm. in the in the village. Yeah. Because it, it was kind of, I mean, it's kind of akin to being a spy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it definitely is because like, you, hey, you have a message. So. You have information. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to make sure you don't have, you don't give the information yeah so because yeah they're also taught that like hey if you ever encounter any germans like you either avoid them like the plague right and you do like what Schofield did later and you run or you know to engage and kill engage and kill exactly as for what i would have done yeah i i, I would have shot him in the plane i totally would have done that I would have either shot him in the plane and put him out of his misery, or I I think there's a chance that I would have gotten caught up in the moment just to pull him out, because there's, like, such a visceral, like, somebody screaming in the flames. Like, that's, I don't know, that's, like, such a thing yeah. from a human psychology standpoint. I think I might have gotten caught up in the moment, like, drug him out, and then be like, wait, crap, like, what are we going to, like, at that point, honestly, like, I know this will sound... Yeah, you know it's me. I'm spaying at him. Uh, yeah. Because at that point, my concern would be raising more noise. Yeah. And, like, having well gunfire and stuff. I mean, I know that that sounds a little silly with the plane and stuff. Yeah, but, I just say, the plane just crashed, so there's going to be noise. But at the same point in time, like, I just feel like planes crash. Like, the thing is, I don't know how close people are, so they might have assumed, like, the plane crashed over there. We're not going to really check it out, like. Because at first it looked like maybe it was going down that other hill, you know. So, like, if you see it from a certain perspective, it could be a couple miles away. And you're like, I'm not going two miles away to check out that. Yeah. Versus, you know, oh, hey, it actually ended up diving over here. It's only, like, a couple hundred yards. I'll yeah. go check that out, you know. Yeah. But if you can hear a gunshot. Yeah, you. I mean, I guess you're kind of trained to know what a gunshot is, so. I don't know. I'm also oddly, weirdly, forever more comfortable with bladed things. That's just my background. I'm weird. I think anybody that knows you knows that you like bladed things. I I, so I know. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. I we're just gonna leave that there. <laughs> it's, it's it's true. Yep. So the thing that frustrates me the most about that scene, though, yes, is that you know he's there bleeding out. Mm-hmm. And he finally passes, and then, like, he sits there, and, you know, he's crying over his friend. And then the two guys just walk up casually, and you're right. just like, really? <laughs> like, they were practically on the other side of this house. That was one of the few times that the whole one-take thing, I thought, fought against it. Yeah. 
Uh, it definitely did. Because, like, you pan, and they're all peeing, and you're like, yeah. Are y'all deaf? Right? Like. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> Somebody just died. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm gonna... if they were that close, you would think they would have heard the plane crash. Yeah, they said they saw the smoke. Yeah, so it's like, so were they walking towards this area for the last, like, 10 minutes or five minutes or whatever? And it's like, it, yeah, it's just, yeah. It, it was one of yeah. the few times that that geography got a little fuzzy. Yeah. Are y'all supposed to be further away? Or was there supposed to be more time that took place between him yeah, passing I mean, away and... As they panned over... Because Ashley was watching with me, she kind of laughed because she's like, "Oh, let me, you gotta go, you gotta go." And oh yeah, and I was like, "Yeah," but then my brain went, "Wait, this is like, this is the short side. You can't see them, like, yeah, like you oh, just yeah. like, yeah." Those were one of the first <laughs> things. Like even in the theater, whenever I watched it, I was like, "Are you freaking kidding me?" Like, yeah. That's a terrible scene. <laughs> it, it was like, if it had been another 30 feet, I would have bought it. Yeah. It's like, it wasn't, it was just needed a little bit further. <laughs> yeah. They just passed that part of the house and now you're peeing on it. Yeah. It's like, well, or I would have even bought, like, if you'd panned the side of the house and, like, the opposite side of the house, there's a few dudes. And then there's, like, some people peeing at, like, a barn, like, another 30 feet on the same oh, side. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. then we're good. We're good. Yeah. But yeah, it was just like, so I'm just saying, even if they'd just been on the other side of the house, yeah. but because they were on the short side of the house where you can see into the yard, it's like, I don't know about you. I don't care if you're in the middle of the war. I'm not going to be like, oh, look, there's a smoking wreckage of a plane and some dude, huh, looks like that guy's just dying. I got to pee. Right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, we we kind of broke that egg. I'll get into the whole... No, I, I was one actually, take. Yeah, thing. yeah. Let's get into that because I I did want to start bringing that up. We we're we're I think we're deep enough into this yeah. conversation now. So I have mixed feelings about it as a concept in general. One take movies. Okay, like let's just talk about this broadly for a second. The first, I don't know if it's the first, but probably the earliest, most famous is is a Hitchcock movie called Rope. It's very famous for this now. What used to happen with one-take movies is you literally couldn't do a one-take because the film reel could only hold so much film stock. Yeah. You were limited to to a certain amount of time depending on the film stock and, and certain things in the canister size. But 10 minutes was a good rough, okay? Because it, it's like 600 feet or whatever is in a, in a larger roll. And then you do the math, you know, it's 600 divided by 24, it's 10 minutes or whatever, 12 minutes, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, it's good. So you're constantly, just just a visualization, pretty much, you're constantly having to change out those reels. Right. And that's part of the reason you have cuts. Yes. It's that way then they can change the reels. And so with, with Rope, they, you know, they did, by today's standard, fairly crude transitions because there wasn't any wipes or anything like that and of course there's no um traveling mats or things like that to sort of black it out so he's he's doing it by having people like leave the room for a second and like leaving it as close to the same framing they had to change the film out hit 
you know, start recording again and then splice it together. And so you have hopefully as little of a jump as possible. Yeah. Um, and then there's things like the, there's one shot where it's, they're dolling into um, somebody's like shirt and then coming back out. So the transitions are much more obvious is the, kind of what I guess I'm getting at. So it's an interesting concept. Um, it's mostly shot like a play. You know, you're kind of fourth wall. Yeah. Shooting people in a space. And, and I mean, and there's there's dollies and a little bit of zooms and stuff going on. So, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it's not a movie. It is. But it's very play-like. They're doing these long takes, coming up with the transition, next reel. And so, really, you don't have much one-take movies for a long time. I mean, you just yeah. don't. Well, I mean... From just from the sound of it, it sounds very difficult, very frustrating for a filmmaker to do. So really, until you get into some way to advance that cut to be more natural and seamless, like you can't do much with it. So there's very few stories that are going to make sense even to try it. Once you start getting into more advanced visual effects techniques now you can do like a traveling mat and you can do wipes and you can do other things where you can kind of hide some of these transitions or make them a lot smoother then you start seeing a few examples now i don't remember off the top of my head if there's any that were going for like a seamless invisible cut but definitely some there are some famous long takes in film history and there's there's quite a few of them like so they get Long takes get more complicated because you start having things like steady cams where you can follow people down. So there's like famous sequences where people would be on steady cam and do these really, you know, previously impossible coordinations. And then you had something called the techno crane, which is basically a big crane that can also essentially dolly. It can telescope. So it's this giant jib arm that can also retract or extend, and it's heavy-duty enough you can have an operator at the end of it. And so you can do all these crazy shots now. And so uh, like a really famous example is the there's a, a Robert Altman movie that the whole opening sequence is a one-take. And it's supposed to be like a studio backlot slash studio offices, and it's on a big techno crane, and it's like 10 minutes and stuff like that. So... There's kind of these isolated examples where within the story they will do one or two sequences that are really long. But there's very few movies that as a whole are trying to, to do this. The first movie I saw that was truly a one-take, and this is really a one-take. There is no cuts. There's no dissolves. There's no trickery. It is just literally we put the camera on a steady cam rig and we practiced and blocked a bunch of stuff. And here's like an 80-minute movie. And it's called The Russian Ark. It's not the most interesting movie. <laughs> it's basically a history lesson. So yeah. it's a it's a live museum where everybody is dressed up and in costume and in person and in character for whatever they're representing in Russian history. And so it's basically like an 80-minute, 85-minute like Russian uh, history lesson where yeah. you're you're going through and seeing it. And so I don't want to make it say it's boring in the sense that Russian history is boring. I'm saying it's boring in that it's a relatively tame film. If you're watching it for the movie thing, 
it's not really a movie. It's not narrative in that sense. It's more kind of like a one-take documentary. It's an interesting thing, but it's it's not not nearly on this level. It, but it is unique in that it is legitimately a one take. I mean, it is an achievement from that from that standpoint. And so I remember seeing that, and that was like in two thousand and twelve, two thousand thirteen. Yeah. My neighbor at the time is a big cinephile, and he had it. He's like, I think you'd like this. So <laughs> then you kind of have the one take. That's the hybrid, and this is really where 1917 is. It's clearly not one take. Yeah. I don't think anybody would watch this, and if I asked them, I'd be like, so do you think this is one take? And they'd be like, well, no. Is it more than two takes? Well, probably, because, I mean, most everybody will say, well, it has to be at least two, because he clearly gets, like, knocked out and time passes, so we've started. right. Right. So it's, like, at least two, right? While the transitions are invisible, it doesn't feel like a one take. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, we we kind of briefly talked about this, too. Like, there's definitely several scenes, um, like, where they zoom in, kind of like what you were saying with mm-hmm. the zooming into the shirt. Um, you know, they kind of, they don't necessarily zoom in on anything, but they just kind of pan the camera off of. Right. They focus on something. Yeah. Uh, specifically what I was thinking, the example I used with you earlier was just like the bucket of milk. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of zoom in on that a little bit. Right. So it's like that's something easy, kind of like what you were talking about, where they can just film the doorway and somebody can walk out the, the door and shut the door and then, okay, there's a cut. Right, right. You know, and so there's several spots like that. Mm-hmm. And that that's something I noticed the second time that I watched it. Sure. So, like, yeah, there's definitely, there's quite a, quite a few scenes where it's kind of like, it kind of does that. Yeah, I was counting while I watched, and I, I definitely got into the 20s Yeah, of, like, pretty confident. I did a little research, and I think they said there's something like mid-30s. There's like 35, 36 cuts. I could see that. It, I mean, if you're watching it and you're wondering, the three types that are, the majority of the cuts. There's a couple that don't fall into this, but one, if there is, and this is direct from Roger Deakins, if there is a foreground element that completely crosses frame or covers like 90% of the frame, so like somebody walks close enough to block a lot of the frame as they walk by, that's probably a transition. Yep. Because as they do this, what they do is they mask it, and so it's like shot A... And as the person walks over, shot B is revealed or vice versa. Option two is what you just described, where basically you get to where you can remove the primary subjects, a.k.a. people, out of the frame for a second, and then you can bring them back in. So it's like somebody's in shot and you kind of pan over to the right and they walk down. You know, it's like they disappeared down a ridge line and they come back up, right? It's like, yeah. well, they went down, that's that or, shot A, and yeah. then they did the motion and it it's it's matched motion and so when they came back up, it's like, oh hey, that's that's shot B and then we've continued. Yeah. The um, the scene in the river like that. I was trying to trying to kind of figure out how many scenes like that could have been. And mm-hmm. they could have done it all in one scene up until the waterfall. Yeah. But yeah, 
definitely that waterfall was definitely very clearly a cut. Yeah, they they did a blue screen. So him him jumping off. Oh yeah, I could just say. And then there's the blue screen drop. Yeah, that. And then he's in, and then he hits that one big rock, and it, again it's a foreground wipe. Oh yeah, it is. And so he goes around that. That's that's a transition point, and then. Uh, I know there's one other one, and then there's obviously him going over. So, yeah, I think there's probably like five in that yeah. river sequence, honestly. Yeah. There's at least three. I was going to say, I, I counted at least three. So yeah. I, I, I'd say it's you, probably four or five. Yeah. I'd say if you think four or five, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, that's just off of one viewing. I'm sure right. if I rewatch, I'd be like, it's that. And <laughs> <Right. laughs> exactly. again, I, I would say. I know this sounds a little bit like splitting hairs, but I think it's kind of important because it sets up expectation. This is not designed to feel, in my opinion, I think if they anybody says this is designed to feel like one take, no, no, I, I just don't buy it. I'm sorry. There's I don't buy that either. There's a way, but I just mean like the way that they are filming this, it just doesn't communicate that. No, I don't think so either. Now, what I do think they are largely successful at there's a few that stick out more, but 80% of the cuts are what you would say invisible. Yeah. Nobody's going to be like, oh, that's a cut, unless you're unless you're thinking about it. And honestly, if you're there just to enjoy the story, it's very easy to, to, to have it go by. It doesn't draw attention to itself. That's great. I'm all for that. The thing that you get from the invisible takes and this is always the the case of what they're arguing for is immersion. I don't necessarily think that immersion is the best argument. I do think what you get is a continuance of performance. Yeah. And that is cool because you're so focused on continuing that performance and you're giving space in multiple scenes where you have multiple minutes of them doing stuff. I think the actors get into kind of this hybrid mode where they they are more naturalistic because they're not it's not as mechanical. If you've never been on a film set, a lot of it is pretty much okay, action. I need you to walk over to here, do these two things, then say this line, then do this thing, and then you're out. It's very precise. Like I need you to walk over here and say this thing and then look a half an inch over. No, too far, too Go back. Yeah, that's your eye line right there. Okay, perfect. And then I need you to do this. And I'm not saying that's like that's 100% valid. Yeah. So from an acting standpoint, it's a big difference. Yes, they still have to hit marks. Yes, they still have to time all this. But it's so built into the performance. You know, this whole sequence we're going to film is three and a half minutes, give or take a few seconds. Because they had to be very precise. So we're going to do this, we're going to do this, you know how you're running the route, you know, you're doing all this stuff, and now you've got to deliver it on top of that. So there's a lot to go in, so I don't want to make it sound like the actors have an easier job. I don't think they do. Oh, but, I, I don't either. But by extending it, the performance, every take, you have a little bit more time to actually settle into that take. So yeah. I think it ends up giving you a performance that when taken as a whole, I think they're allowed to kind of get into it and they just kind of forget a little bit. It's a little easier to get out of actor mode and just sort of be in the moment because you're actually having moments. So it's like you're never asking, like, why am I walking through this door? 
Like yeah. you kind of know because you understand what it's doing in the sequence because you're about to do the whole sequence. Whereas a lot of time actors are kind of like, all right, this shot, I'm I'm just putting my hand on the door handle. Yep. Uh, okay. And then it's like, what am I doing this? Oh, we're just shooting your close up. You just need to look surprised. It's it's very divorced from sometimes. Now, now that's not all director style, but I think sometimes you can very much be like, as a director, like you can see it in your head, you know how you're going to edit it, and it's like, I just need you to do this for me, actor. Versus, here's everything you're going to need to do so you understand all of this, and you're going to do it all together, and it's very connected. A lot of times what I've seen in long take stuff is a sacrifice in framing. Um, so, so what do you mean by framing? Yeah, I was like, I'm probably going to have to explain that a little bit. Yeah. Please expand on that. So, I mean, basically the frame is the shot, what you're seeing. That's the frame, right? Right. So kind of think of it like like a play, like the whole frame of the play, right? What you see on the stage is what you're kind of engrossed in. That's kind of the same principle as what you're seeing inside of film. So one of the things that's cool about film that is unique as an art form is that you only see what's in the frame. Nothing else exists. So you have to show what's important and you have to remove what's not to to draw the the person to see the right thing. And there's a number of ways to do that. One of the ways is through depth of field, which is what's in focus essentially mm-hmm. and how much is in focus. You can have deeper focus where there's a lot of stuff in focus or you can have really shallow um, lighting. What's lighter, what's dark, what's outlined, what's got contrast. Um, but just fundamentally, just framing, just saying, all right, you know, I'm, you know, we kind of showed it comically, like we were both frustrated with the the sort of framing of this house feeling so close to the scene where the guy dies. Like, where were you guys? Like, yeah, like in a play, we would buy that. Like we were in a theater. And these guys just walked onto stage out of the wings. And they're like, what's going on? We wouldn't think anything of it. Because in that setting, the wings is infinity, right? Right. Like, they don't exist outside of that. Yeah. But in the film, it's like, well, there's a house, like, just out of frame. Like, where were you? So we, we kind of connect the geography. So the framing is very important. In a traditional film, let's say you have somebody approaching a house. Let's say we're moving with them. We're physically moving the camera to match this person as they're walking up. If you did kind of normal, you'd probably get to a certain point, and then you're going to cut to an ideal angle that shows new information, and you probably jumped ahead a little bit in time, and now it's very interesting to watch the character approach the house, and then you might cut into this close-up so you can see the sweat and their tights, and then you might cut to a POV and kind of what they're looking at. It's like maybe they're peering up through a window and you like cut to this shot of like in, you can see through the window and what's in the house a little bit. And you cut back to them and then they like move out of frame and then you cut to the whole other section. And so you're kind of piecing together all this stuff and you're always picking the shot that communicates exactly what you want for that moment. And so sometimes it's wide, sometimes it's a close-up of their eye, sometimes it's POV, sometimes it's uh, above and you're looking down. Sometimes it's eye level. Like sometimes it's really deep depth of field. Sometimes really shallow. 
Yeah. And you can do all sorts of other things. You can have, you know, random insert shots of their hands on their rifle or sweat or blade of grass. Like, you know, you can just do stuff. Versus, let's do that as a one take. All right, we're going to track with them. But then, oops, we still got to travel another 30 feet forward towards the house with them. And now we got to wait for him to settle, take a beat, look up in the window, but we can't. So are we going to like try to maneuver around him so we can sort of see through that window, but we can't change the lens, which I haven't even talked about lens selection. I'll get that in a second. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> well, then if he moves, so are we going to track behind him or do we want to swing back again? Like, do we want to, what oh, yeah. can happen when it's not good is two things. One, the pacing of it's really hard to keep. Because now it's like some of this you might want to speed up versus slow down. So then you got to really build it into the choreography and the performance to, to help that. But then you also got to marry that with the camera. So hopefully this is interesting and not boring. And so the problem is sometimes I've seen some one-take stuff where it's a little boring. There's lots of times where a one-take that was designed as a one-er has been later chopped up. Because they're like, it wasn't, it wasn't moving fast enough. We had to get to the point. And so they envision this whole shot, you know, it was like a two-minute sequence shot. And they're like, yeah, we cut out a whole 30 seconds in the middle. We just, we like did the opener and we did this. And then we jumped to this part of it. <laughs> and uh, that happens. Again, that's, that's okay, you're committing to a whole movie of this and you're going to make sure that timing's, pacing's right, like editing that. That's, what if you decide a performance is too slow or too fast or, you know, got to figure this out. You can't cut. Yeah. So you, it's it's a very tricky thing to find a rhythm and a tempo to the story that, that matches exactly what you want the audience to be. The other thing is, like I said, you can't just jump perspectives. You, again, you have to kind of make a choice of, okay, is my framing wide here or is my framing close? Uh, I don't know. I, I want to pick one, right? Right. So it's like, okay, well, I've got to be wide on this because we've got to show this, but... When they get to this, I'd like to be close enough that we can see their faces to read their expression. Okay, so now I got to figure out how to do both of those in the same shot. And I got to block it. It's just, it's really hard. But, I mean, what it comes down to is like if. Right. You, well, but, and, and that's what I was kind of getting at, you know, earlier is just like, just because it looks easy and continuous, like, this has to be like a very hard movie to make. Like, not only for the filmers, but also on the actors as well, actresses. They said actually one of the, the toughest shots was they had a lighter that kept messing up. And so they would be in the middle of this like long sequence and they'd have a lighter that wasn't lighting. And it would ruin the shot. They'd have to reset. <laughs> so it's like if you're an extra and you bobbled, badly enough that they can't use that take that's a big deal yeah i i was watching this and i was like man i have a feeling that was a, a happy accident like i don't call it a mistake i think it was a happy accident because it's amazing in my opinion yeah the end when he is running above the line and he gets hit by a guy while he's running and then he gets hit again both those are accidents not intended i I, it worked great, I thought. Oh, I thought it was 100%, like I said, a happy accident because, one, completely believable. Yeah. 
If you just um, showed up as a rando and they're about to do a charge and you're going this way, it's entirely possible somebody would clip you or completely run into you. I mean, it's just the second thing is I just for a variety of reasons I went, I don't think that that was planned. One, well, because it's a stunt. Right. So it's like, what if you mess up your actor? Like, that's a problem. Like, your lead actor's running as hard as he can, and then you're going to have somebody just slam into him. I was like, that's a full stunt. Yeah. And and they're in gear. Like, there's a lot of crap that can go wrong there. Second, there's explosions. So there's a, there's a, you know, even with big budget films, there's a limit of how many times you can do an explosion. Yeah. And you have timing of it. Mm-hmm. You know, what if he, you know, you know, what if there's an spl- explosion that's supposed to be behind him and he doesn't make it in time and yeah. it explodes on him? Well, and actually you can <laughs> kind of see that in his performance. Part of the reason, like after he gets hit that first time, he is sprinting because he knows he's behind. Yeah. He's like, I've got to catch up to that camera. Yep. And so he is full sprinting, which is probably why he hit the second guy. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was, he wasn't just running. There was. It was a sprint, and that second guy probably was like, I can make it. Like, nope. Right. And then also the other reason why I said I thought it was an accident is because of how he dismounted. Like, he just went for it. Yeah. Because like, he got trips up and he like does like a front somersault and rolls. And I was like, yeah. that guy's just running on adrenaline, dude. Like, that's yeah. awesome. There was one of those guys that he hit. The way that he hit, it looked like it was like really close to hitting his bayonet. Yeah. And now, obviously, you know, there's stunt bayonets and there's safety pr- procedures. Maybe. I mean, they, right. they, I'm sure they weren't sharpened, but. Their background ones, they very well might have been like aluminum or metal. I mean, yeah. they, they may have not been like a resin or a rubber. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, you never know. But it looked like it very easily could have punctured him, clipped him, and like mm-hmm. hurt him type thing. Yeah. The great part about that shot is that, I, I don't know if you could tell, but it looked like the ending of that shot was whenever he makes it to the commander. Like that that's what it looked like to me. Oh, so you think they cheated it? No, cuz like he he jumps up onto the field, he runs across, hits right, the two right. guys. He keeps running, he makes it back down into the trench and then mm-hmm. he says, "Where's the colonel?" And they're just like, "Right in there." And yeah, then yeah. he runs into the colonel. Mm-hmm. And then that's whenever you see it the camera pans around right. to the colonel and it Well, they they wipe on the blackness. So basically, every time they go down in these little bunkers, it's yeah. so dark that you kind of lose the character for a second, and you can wipe in there, basically. Gotcha. So on that, what you do is, I think it's that shot that specifically, is when they're coming in, there's sandbags, and so they basically wiped on that left wall. They can wipe that gotcha. into where that sandbag is, and then you can you can cut. That's the new take there. Well, still. Right. No, you know, you're, you're right. I'm just... It's right in there, mm-hmm. you know, a little, a, a few seconds before where I was thinking, but. Well, basically, once he's in the bunker, that whole scene is together as one. So basically, him going in and going out is yeah. is the separation. Right. Well, I mean, he still has to fight the two guys. That's that's also part of the take. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. No, you're 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 right. Like, so he, he runs into two guys, drops down into the trench. Mm-hmm. 
pushes his way past all the other guards, and then the two guys won't let him go into the bunker. Mm-hmm. And so he has to fight them off. Yeah. <laughs> all in one take. <laughs> yeah. And and they said it was about a quarter mile. Yeah. Like I it's mean, not a short run. Yeah. And so that's why I said you can really see him turn on the afterburner and try to catch up because like he's running, but before he gets hit, he's running fast, but he's running trying to make sure he doesn't run anybody, but kind of keep up. But you don't feel that like level of like desperation. I've got to to run as fast as possible. It's like, okay, I'm running. Okay. Oh, there's guys. I got to avoid. And then all of a sudden it's like, bam. And you just see him get back up as fast as he can and just starts hauling. Yeah. And you can see it in his eyes. He's just like, no. Yeah. And you can also <laughs> tell that I think you are right. I, definitely a happy accident because of how far away he gets. Because he does. He gets really far away. And you would think that if it wasn't an accident, it wouldn't be like it would have slowed down. Yeah. But the camera did not slow down. Nope. <laughs> so because they like, had to keep their timing for the extras running through and the bombs going off right. and the explosions because like you know you don't want to do the big explosion and miss half of it yeah because you're com- again you're committed to this angle you can't like cut to the safety camera of the bomb going the explosion going off and be like well that's a nice explosion and like <laughs> you have to get it in this shot right <laughs> so right, exactly yeah there's and <laughs> yeah so <laughs> I do absolutely. have to- I do have to ask you, so right before that happens, uh, you know, they start running, they start getting shelled. There's actually a a part where he's, like, fighting his way through, like, no, I have to get to the colonel, I have Uh to get to the colonel. I I keep calling it colonel, I hope it is colonel. Cumberbatch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's colonel. Colonel McKenzie? Okay. Mm -hmm. They start the shelling, he gets... There's an explosion. He he goes up to the guy and he's like, "Hey, I need to find the colonel. You have to stop the attack." And then like he goes a couple of couple of feet and then right where he was sitting talking to the guy that was crying, it gets shelled. Oh. So there's that that happens. And then he keeps going down mm-hmm. and there's another shell and you see him like duck and dodge like he was expecting something to happen oh. and nothing happens and so he's just like oh okay I don't and think then, I caught that oh you didn't catch that dude I the second time I caught it I was like yeah. somebody mistimed an explosion it's, it's very possible <laughs> or he mistimed his his rea- response one of the right, two right yeah so yeah I wasn't sure if you caught that well or not, but. I was watching a video of Deacons talking through some of those sequences, which yeah. was really cool because he talked about some of the wipes and what they were doing. And in it's like, okay, all right, we're on this rig and this, and then we transition to this rig. So basically, what a, what a steady cam does is it's counterbalanced so that you you don't get certain types of unwanted movement. It it allows you to go up and down relatively smoothly and side to side, but it it doesn't necessarily counterbalance certain things. Yeah, one there's some limitations to it and two it takes a lot of skill to be a really good steady cam op. now what it started coming on is what we would call now like gimbals and they're like five axis stabilization so whether you move it forward and backwards or side to side or turning it or rotating it does all of it and so what they were doing is that they would have sometimes they would have a steady cam operator with the five axis and then sometimes they would just have a couple grips 
like kind of one on each side holding it and flying it around. But the actual camera operator, a lot of times Roger, I don't know if it's always or if it was just most time, but it was Roger Deacons doing it. And in the sequence of him running away in the burning town, yeah, there's this one time where he's coming down and then he like turns the corner and we're ahead of him. And the camera has to basically do a pan out because it's it's backing up physically in space and then has to pan to kind of reframe here. Yeah. And you can see it like kind of pan and then have a hesitation and then like finish the motion. And then like it overshot a little bit, had to come back a little. And Roger's like, oh, there's some really terrible operating by me. <laughs> <laughs> and so again, like that's kind of like the one take stuff. Like that's what you get a problem into is that there's always stuff like that that you have to sacrifice a little bit. Yeah. Because everything else works. And so you're like, oh, yeah. eh. Now, in a normal movie, you would just cut that out. Or you would have taken another take, you know? Like, yeah. you just, you would have had him running, and then you just would have cut, like, two seconds out until you turned and had him come into frame or, you know, you, lots of options, right? There's lots of ways to cut around that kind of error, so to speak. Um and these are the people who are the best of the best. I mean, Roger is the guy who DP'd Shawshank Redemption and Skyfall, A Road to Perdition. There's a movie I was just thinking of, uh, Blade Runner 2049. Okay. He's he's done a gajillion things. Yeah. But he's known for doing, I would say, really clean cinematography with a lot of naturalistic lighting. I didn't realize until I heard him today, he likes a really clean image. This whole movie... There's no dirt on the frame. There's no water. There's no fog. There's no lens breathing. There's no flares in the image. And a lot of movies like this, like you would have that, like oh they're in trenches, like you'd have you'd have like mud splash up on the frame. Yeah, there's not. No, not even in the water scene. No, because Roger's like no. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't like it. He, he's like no. Which I actually agree with him. I, no, I I do too. I rarely, rarely. I hate that actually. <laughs> now that now that you mention it, like I I don't like that in movies at all. About the only movie I can think of that was kind of passable. I can kind of give it a pass when I feel like there's movies that there are movies, but they have such a documentary feel to them. I can kind of live with it. So like Children of Men, for okay. me works, and like. District 13, I wouldn't care because, again, it's like a document. It's a mockumentary, essentially. Like, that kind of stuff doesn't bother me. Or when it feels so documentary-like, even if it is a movie, I can kind of forgive it. But, yeah, I, like, hate – I especially hate it when it's visual effects. Oh, yeah. I'm like, yeah, just no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you were talking about Zoom. So there there is – so as far as Zooming – the difference between zooming and um, trucking or dolling, which trucking is basically going forward or backwards, dolling is technically left or right. A zoom, you do not move the camera in Z axis, or right. in you're not moving the camera. You might pan, but you're zooming the the lens element itself well, or right. digital. Yeah, I know I'm getting a little more technical than we have typically. Yeah. I warned everybody in the first part. I know. So I, I know. My if you hadn't watched the first I'm letting part. my freak flag fly, brother. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
So there is no zooms in this movie, technically. Now, there might be a little bit of digital zoom just to stitch shots together a little bit, but um, they're, they're what's called primes. They're, they're not, um, there is no zoom element to these lenses. They are yeah. primes. Uh, like, I'm trying to think, and yeah, the only time, it's like a false zoom almost. Right. But like, because you can tell the camera's coming backwards. Mm-hmm. But it's still, like, the way that the shot is, it could look like a zoom almost. Well, they did have so. to stitch a couple times where they did train, change lenses. So, like, when he's inside the building, they went slightly wider. So they did the, the standard one. So they shot the aspect ratio is 190 to 1. It's a 1.90 to 1 ratio. So it's almost 2 to 1 scale. Mm-hmm. So the super 35 millimeter film ratio was a 185 to 1. So it's pretty close to that. But 19 is actually the IMAX default. I gotcha. think. No, that makes sense cuz I I know they like they put, filmed this in IMAX, yeah. Yeah, they they pushed IMAX on this. Standard widescreen typically is 235 to 1. That's like one of the most common. And that was because if you took that was that was if you did anamorphic lenses. That was why you take a normal 4x3 anamorphic stretch it. Or, or 166 or whatever, you'd stretch it, and it's 235 or whatever it is. Uh, anyways, I won't go too deep in that. That's a rabbit hole. It's very fascinating, though. The, you mean, like, gopher tunnel? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we kill a lot of gophers. We're, we're already in the rabbit hole. <laughs> there's, there's just, there's like a gopher hole over there. <laughs> we're about to get into, you know... <laughs> meerkat home country oh, oh all right if we all go right. much further into formats um <laughs> the simplest way to think of this is like does the frame give you more horizontal versus for vertical space yeah and so this is a nice balance i think in that it gives you a little more widescreen but it's not extreme and so if you have people walking in frame it, it's a nice it's a nice balance yeah so the lens that they shot most of the movie on was a 40 millimeter, which is slightly wide angle. But I like it because one of the reasons I haven't watched like a Birdman movie is because they shot a little wider. One of the things that bugged me about The Revenant, they shot that very wide. You basically have a neutral focal length for every format, which is around 50 millimeters. It, it depends. If you're being really technical, there, there's other factors. But... For the sake of simplicity, let's say 50 millimeters is neutral, okay? Okay. What I mean by neutral is that the feeling of things in the background, mid, mid-ground and foreground, feel roughly equal. Okay? Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So as you become more telephoto, so if you doubled that to 100 millimeter, double 2x zoom, essentially, to 100 millimeter, things that are in the background will actually feel a lot similar in size and thus closer to the foreground and you can actually look these up on online it's actually pretty fun to see they've had a lot of photographers and videographers do this where they will take a subject standing you know x amount of space in front of an object you know a building or something in the distance and they will film them at different focal lengths and you'll see how it'll feel when they get into these telephoto it'll feel like that building back there is like right behind you and it's all blurry, but it's like right there. It feels almost the same size. And then on the wide angle, it'll feel like this dot in the distance. 
But what happens to the human face is that as you get to a wide angle, it stretches everything. And so you get people look weird. Their face is kind of stretched. And as you get away from the center of the frame, everything's distorted out much more so. Uh So what I don't love about that, a lot of times what happens in these big kind of invisible cut single take movies, like The Revenant and Birdman, is that they go wider angle. And so when they have to come in close to the actor, like their face is like stretched out and big. And it's very distorted feeling. And and even in certain shots, if they're like, I remember in The Revenant, like the opening, some of the action sequences, there's so much distortion happening at the edge of frame that things that are vertical are bent. And it's just, it's very distorted. So to me, it feels very artificial because it's like, hey, we got to film all this. Put a wide on it, baby. We're just going to shoot the whole thing. And it's like, okay. So when they need to come into a wide, into a close-up, it's like, wow, okay. Yeah, that's um, that's a shot. Okay. And I liked The Revenant. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. I'm just saying there's parts of me that was like, I just wish they'd just not. I wish they'd just done long takes with cuts and not try to make it like a one shot movie for most of it like i would have been fine like cool make this sequence a 10 minute sequence awesome now freaking cut please change the lens thank you i know i'm being yeah i'm whatever i I haven't seen the revenant so i don't know what you're talking about okay well birdman's similar birdman's a little less extreme haven't seen birdman either let's put it this way i'll put in a term you'll 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 immediately get i think it's like running around with your iPhone's wide angle or like a GoPro, right? It's like running around with a GoPro. Everything is wide, right? So you can see a lot, right? You can be like three feet away from something and you can still see the walls on each side of the room. It's like, hey, this is cool. I can see everything. But like you wouldn't try to like take that picture for, of somebody like for their senior portrait of a GoPro. You wouldn't take the GoPro and be like, yeah, here's your portrait for your your uh, headshot it, it looks weird right right so that's kind of what the revenant and birdman do it's like hey here's a wide angle lens we're gonna film everything and it's like okay that works some of the time <laughs> yeah well right what is cool about 1917 is that the 40 millimeter is not very distortion it, it's a pretty flattering neutral angle so you can get close to things without it feeling like it's a GoPro stuck in their face in terms of angle distortion. Well, yeah. But it's slightly wide, so you can still back up and get these nice wide shots of the landscape and environments. But a few times they had to deviate from that for different reasons. So there are a few times where you are right that they had to digitally kind of stitch, and there is a little bit of warping like you would get in a zoom because in a couple of places they had to go wider and I think the couple places they had to go tighter. Again, not drastically. I think it was, I think he said they had a 45 millimeter, a 40 millimeter, and a 32, maybe. They're, they're weird focal lengths. It's like, they're not like in five millimeter steps necessarily. Like, there's reasons for it, but like common focal lengths are like 24 millimeter, 28, 32, 34, the thing. Um, there is a 35, but again, it depends on formats. There's a 37 that's used a lot in anamorphics, I think. Um, 40s. Anyways, so every format 
in lens specification kind of has like their their normals it's it's all related and it's all a weird hybrid of art and math and science and engineering i have spent way more of my life than i want to admit to <laughs> watching <laughs> videos on youtube of, of cinematographers comparing <laughs> Oh, I'm I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Just just learning everything you can about the different lenses and why you want to use this and why you want to use that. I, I get it. Well, and then I've spent way too much time even like watching them be like, here's the exact same camera or the exact same film stock, the exact same focal length, and here's five different brands of lenses. Well, yeah. And... And every, it's and in, it, every every brand's gonna be a little different, right? And, yeah. and sometimes it's so subtle that it's like, do we just want to color correct for the difference? And then actually, sometimes that's what they'll do. They'll color correct them to be the same, <laughs> and you'll watch them, and you're like, it's like, what's the difference? You're yeah. Like, and you're like in your own head, and you're like, I like B better. B was better. Yeah, B was better, right? No, C. It was C. <laughs> it's it's really bad. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I can tell you about some... I, I won't bore everybody in this episode, but I can tell you about some of the camera tests and things that I've, I've watched and found interesting over the years. Some of them are more interesting than others, to be sure. I will say that to, to summonate all of this, I really like a lot of Roger Deakins' approach because he keeps the clean, the, the frame clean, he keeps it sharp. He is a master of lighting. He's also very um, ingenious. Like, he just uses simple things in a clever way. Yeah. Um, I also like it that he is, like, the calmest dude. You should just watch an interview. If you've never seen an interview with Roger Deakins, just watch anything. I mean, they're short ones, like four or five minutes. He is this very relaxed, older British gentleman. And he's got this big shock of white hair, and he's very unassuming, super humble, quiet, mild-mannered, and he is, like, at the top of the game. He's one of the f probably five best cinematographers in the world. And you just, you wouldn't know it. Listen to the guy. I love it. <laughs> I was like, all right. is, is that all you have? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> of course not. Of I mean, course not. We could not. have a six-hour podcast if I was just going to talk about a random, random detailed randomness about filming. Man, I, I, I I've gotten a lot of entertainment out of this episode. Oh, but I'm glad. <laughs> I, I, it might be for different reasons because, oh, no. man, I, I. I forgot how passionate you get <laughs> and how animated you get. You're just over here flailing your arms <laughs> left and right. Man, listeners, I wish you could see this. Oh, it's great. It's it, it's very entertaining. He's he talks with his hands so much. Oh, I, I do. I, I I totally forgot about that sometimes. This is why I do but... not have coffee when we <laughs> Because I would splash the coffee. I'd talk. Just I'd forget. It. Yeah, just I'd forget. <laughs> I say that because I've done that at work. <laughs> I feel like, oh, my coffee cup's empty. Nope, nope, it wasn't. <laughs> it is on the floor right now. 
And the wall. The wall. <laughs> yeah, or the wall. <laughs> Let's just say the old building has a few spots. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Josh. <laughs> this is a, one of those movies where I heard about it, I was excited to watch it, and I watched it, and I immediately wanted to talk to you about it. Because <laughs> I was nice. like, man, I know he's got a lot to say about this. Like, this is definitely, like, yeah, it's a good movie. Good story, simple story, but mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that's the elegance of it. Yeah, is they kept it simple. They kept it a simple story. They kept it something that they could do. One thing I will say, real quick, keep that thought. Whatever you're about to say, I just want to note that they did a good job of integrating the audio and the dialogue because oh, yes. again, sometimes in these kinds of movies, that can get also a little cheated out and i didn't feel that i thought that they did a really good job of keeping the conversations when they happened feel pretty natural and good and in a nice reprieve and good paced well are well paced but also just the actual quality of it it sounded good it sounded clear they didn't sacrifice a whole lot to make that kind of happen yeah it's one of those movies where it's an achieve it's an achievement but to me, the achievement is only as interesting as how interesting is the movie as a whole. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that that's basically where I was going with it. Is It was... They, they kept it interesting while doing some fantastic stuff, like, cinemagraphically. Did yeah. I pronounce that right? No, but it's oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Don't correct me, then. <laughs> Uh, it's been a weird day. We're just going with weird. <laughs> We're just going to leave all the weird stuff in here. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> that was terrible. Keep it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. If you guys have enjoyed this, uh, feel free to let us know secondhand. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're keeping it. <laughs> if y'all have enjoyed this feel free to let us know secondhandmoviespodcast at gmail.com write us a review on yes please uh, I was gonna say Amazon not Amazon we're not on Amazon we're on uh, that Apple thing Apple yeah yes Apple podcast uh, Spotify Although I don't know how to do reviews on Spotify. They're weird. Uh, I mean, you can still leave us a review. We're talking on iHeartRadio as well. Five-star, you know. We want to get our numbers up there. We want to try and reach, you know, the other nerds like Morgan, the other film nerds. That's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) We... (laughs) I don't know if we want to reach those people. We'll get a lot of letters. <laughs> we may get letters, but it's okay. I like how we keep saying letters. <laughs> okay, emails. Digital letters. <laughs> Digital letters. Whatever. <laughs> so, what's our next movie going to be? Our next movie. Uh, so, my wife Ashley looked through our list because we, we had asked, we were talking about this. So, like, have so, y'all not picked out anything? Listeners, you have to understand that 
Ashley has graced us by watching movies with Morgan. So this is true. Anytime she, we have discussed these movies, she always comes up to me and says, "What's the movie?" <laughs> and sometimes what it's am I like in for? that. Sometimes yeah. it's just like that. What am I in for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I've I've given her a fair warning. You know, hey, you might not like this movie. Hey, you're it's true. You're, you might like this movie. Yes. So yes. She requested that she pick this week, since we had not picked. So, yes, we thought that was that was a valid. So she looked through our list because we have a list of you know what we've seen and what are possibilities. So she looked through a possibility and she narrowed it down a few, and one of them was one that honestly I'm a little surprised you haven't seen. Yes, considering because yeah I'm just surprised. It's it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Which I have only seen once. I watched it like 2013, I want to say. It was pretty early. Almost 10 years ago. It was before Tyler was born, I know. Actually, it would have been 2012. Yeah. Gotcha. Over over a decade. Because I had never seen it. So Blake was like, y'all have never seen this? And Ashley hadn't either. I was like, no. I was like, let's watch that. And so, yeah, the three of us watched Ferris Bueller, which, as you will see, is actually very appropriate. The, yeah. The three of us watching that, because it's about three people. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. As we were talking about it, I was like, yeah, no, that makes, I think that would be fun. You made a good comment. I think we're going to try to watch this one together. Usually, we just watch it as we can separately, and then we yeah. talk about it. But, yeah, I think you, you said that you've thought about watching this a bunch of times. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's it's uh, one of those movies that I just I've always felt like I'll get a better grasp of it uh, if I watch it with people. Mm-hmm. I, so I would agree. This is d- totally different genre, but well, genre of humor. But Napoleon Dynamite was the same way with me. I watched it by yeah. myself, and I thought it was an awful movie. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it with some of my friends, and I thought it was the most hilarious movie ever. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, two different worlds. No, very similar experience with me, though. Yeah. Like with Napoleon, I watched it. I went to theaters with a couple of friends, and they were not enjoying it. And they actually left. Like, we actually DNF'd it. We did not finish. Wow. Which, I mean, I probably would have stayed and finished it. One of them was kind of half on board with it with me. Like, we were both kind of like, maybe this is okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we both, I think, had heard positive things. So we were like, okay, maybe it gets better. Or maybe we're missing, you know, like, I don't know. The other one was like, not having it. Yeah. And so we were kind of on the fence. So we ended up leaving, which I've, like, walked out of, like, zero movies. Yeah. In the theaters, at least. Yeah. Your money's worth. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it has to be pretty bad. Or or offensive for me to be like, <laughs> offensive is really the only reason I'd walk out of the theater. To be honest, I could watch a bad movie. Offensive, like if, it, if, if there are certain things, I'm leaving. I'm out. Yeah. Didn't know that was there. Um, but borrowing that, like I, pro- I, so yeah, I don't think I can't think of another movie I've walked out. I feel like there's maybe one other one. There's one I feel like I should have. It was not a good one. Yeah, it was just not enjoyable. Yeah. But the anyways, the second time you watched it, 
Second time I watched it was my family because my brother had heard good things about it. And so we ended up watching it. And it just, it was kind of weird because like at some point it just clicked and we started laughing about it and talking about it. And yeah. it just gets funnier. Yeah. Like you start talking about it and it's just funnier. Nacho Libre did the same thing to me. Like I watched oh, yeah. it and I enjoyed it. I had a better idea what I was walking into. I mean, I knew some of the, what the directors were with Napoleon Diamond because same people. And I knew a little bit about Jack Black. So I was like, had some idea of what this might be, but it was still bizarre and weird even in that. Yeah. And so I kind of watched the whole thing with my brother at theater and we were like, did you like it? I think so. And I, by the time we got home, we were just in stitches laughing over yeah. this thing. And we, we were trying to explain it to our parents and we were just both <laughs> laughing over this stupidity. But, yeah. you know, I made the comment to you that I think for a generation, like Ferris had a very similar type of appeal. It was like, you watch it and it's enjoyable. Like, it's fun. But then... There's something about it that you just end up quoting and certain sequences and scenes you just reference. And, right. Like, you know. Everybody knows Bueller. Mm-hmm. Bueller. Well, it's also a lot like The Breakfast Club. Yeah. It, Which I, I've seen Breakfast Club. I've seen uh, 16 Candles. I've seen, like, I've seen all the 80s movies around it, but I've just never seen... So you've Ferris. seen the other Brat Pack movies? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just I've seen some Ferris. of them. I haven't seen all of 16 Candles. I've seen some of it. It's an interesting movie in that, one, it, it is pretty broad. Like, it, it's definitely in a comedy. Um, has some fourth wall breaking, which is unusual for movies. Right. It, it was, like, one of the first fourth wall breaks, too, right? Like, in... Not necessarily in film history, but like it was one of the first, right? I know it was. I don't know. I know it was the first to do uh, an after credits scene. It really is iconic. I mean that that's a great way to put it. It's just iconic. There's a lot of things about it that are just of its time and that have gone on to embed itself in culture. Yeah. You know, like the Bueller thing. Oh yeah. The fourth um, wall breaks. The... Yeah. There, there's several things that I'm sure you'll go. Oh. Yeah. That clicks. Yeah. So somebody actually has told me like, "Hey, have you seen this movie?" Yes. Have you seen this movie? And I can't tell you which movies mm-hmm. they were, but you know, they named like four or five different movies, and they're like, "Okay, you've basically seen Ferris." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. So this is why it probably wouldn't come up in the list for me as high as with Ashley putting it on the short list. Not because I think it's a bad movie. I enjoyed it, and I'm totally good to watch it again. But it falls into me into the category of what I would say are movies that you should watch regardless of whether you end up liking them or not. Yeah. Because they're foundational to so much of culture and film history further on. Well, not even film history, but just culture in general. Right. That's why I said culture, but also film history. I mean, they're both. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Culture. It'd be like trying to watch action movies of the last 20 years and never seeing The Matrix. (laughs) <laughs> right <laughs> like if you've never seen the matrix there's just everything from action movies to shrek like you just don't get references <laughs> and jokes and in moments and shots you had to bring up shrek <laughs> hey oh mary man <laughs> exactly so there's just some things that if you watch i mean 
you'll understand other things. That would be interesting, like to come up with a scale for that. I don't know what you would call it, but of like how much this movie ends up being referenced by other movies. Oh yeah. Like I haven't come across it to my knowledge, but there should be. How culturally relevant they are. Yeah, like how much cross like cross culture input there is. You know, it's yeah. like Star Wars is like Oh yeah. A nine and a half on that scale, right? Yeah. It's like the Star- Godfather is like an yeah. eight. You know, Jaws is like an eight. Yeah. <laughs> it's like these kind of movies that there's like aspects of them that are just they're everywhere. So embedded, they're referenced in everything from kids' movies to TV shows to books to f- other films to all sorts of stuff. In some cases, there's whole franchise built off of an auxiliary reference. <laughs> I mean, like, that's how influential some of this stuff is. We're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you have things that are just, you know, highly quotable and referenced. And then you have some things that are just story driven. Yeah. You know, we've talked about, like, at some point, I really, at some point, we will watch Chinatown. Chinatown is not an easy watch. Yeah. For for a lot of people. I mean, I, I don't know how heavy it'll feel to you, but it's definitely an adult movie. <laughs> yeah. I put it that way. It's, yeah. it's adult. <laughs> I would never recommend that for young people. But it's also considered, like, pretty gosh darn close to a perfect screenplay. Right. And the plot mechanics of that story are in dozens of films. Some of them terrible films and some of them amazing. But once you recognize the plot structures, all of a sudden you'll see other films and go, that feels familiar. And sometimes they're just riffing off of that and they're using it as some bare bones. And sometimes it's like a straight lift. Right. Those kinds of movies are subtler in that they're not necessarily cultural, but they show up in culture in a way because they're so embedded into the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, again, like, you know, I've seen, like you said, most of the Brat, Brat Pack movies, um, you know, and it's it's always been on my list. It's just like, you know, this uh, 1917 and Dunkirk right. with, with you. Um, it's just... Like I said, I, I've never felt like it's one that I wanted to watch by myself. So, yeah, I'm, I'm valid. I'm excited to get to watch this. Yeah. And this is going to be our first movie to watch together. Yeah. How wholesome. <laughs> I'll make popcorn. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Now, you said that if you are listening to this, you know, shortly after it's come out, it is currently streaming on Paramount Plus, you said? It is. Okay. So, you know, if it's uh, May, or not May, it'll be probably June when this releases. So if it's June of 23, you know, should be hopefully still there. We don't know for sure. It is for rent on Amazon and other places like that, so... Probably finding a five dollar DVD bin. Just to be honest. Very true. Like definitely for me, when you said it was one you'd circled for a long time and that you'd seen other movies similar to it and enjoyed it, I was like, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Like that sounds. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like I'm something su- you would enjoy. I'm super excited about it. Yeah. So. So yeah, if you're wanting to watch it with us, um, 
check out Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, it is PG-13, I want to say. It's pretty mild, PG-13. So just look up. You can find, I'm sure, a parent's guide on uh, IMDb. I'm not exactly sure what age range I would say it's uh, completely appropriate. A good rule of thumb, I would say, is that I know this is a true in fiction. I think it applies a lot of times in films as well. Is like the main character's age, you know, subtract a couple years from that, and you're probably on the bubble. So in this case, <laughs> it's like I think a high school sophomore, junior. They can drive a car, or they're maybe not quite old enough, but they know how to. So I mean, <laughs> yeah, whether so, they have a license or not, they're around that age. Yeah, so junior sophomore. Yeah, they're they're supposed to be between somewhere between fifteen and seventeen, I would say, at yeah. the most. So, um, so probably like sophomore juniors. I don't remember. It's been a decade. Come on. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I think, you know, if you're dealing with teenagers, they're probably fine. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. This has been uh, Secondhand Movies. I'm Morgan. I'm Joel. Catch you next time. One, two, three, four, five.